Another episode of GEQ Speaks, your go-to platform for insightful conversations, captivating stories, and thought-provoking discussions. GEQ is a series of experiences, and we're just making sense of that as we go along. That is what we're doing here, one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and let's dive into our episode. everyone, I'm Rimas Al-Hawri and I'm joined by my two co-hosts Ibrahim Absar and Abdullah Bin Masoud. Today we're joined by our special guest, Dr. John Wright. Dr. John Wright is the Director of Student Life at GQ. He's the adjutant professor at the Red House Education Innovation Lab at Georgetown University, author of the bilocal course You, Me and Us with students from both Doha and DC. First, I would like to thank Dr. Wright for accepting our invitation. So thank you, Dr. Wright, for coming here today to enlighten us with your stories and your experiences in life. It's my pleasure to be here, and um, let me first say that um, I'm really appreciative of this idea finally being born. I've been here for about a couple of years, and people have talked about this occurring, and you know, to finally be a part of this, uh, I'm honored. I will also just let people know um, I'm an old head here at Georgetown, so I've been here almost 19 years. Um, I define myself just simply as a counselor, but I'm a psychologist by training, and most of those years have been spent listening, uh, appreciating um, the many stories and challenges of the students I've met during those years. So, you know, I'm I'm very pleased and feel honored to be here. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, Dr. Wright, uh, firstly, again, just as Amas mentioned, thank you so much for accepting our invitation to be a part of this podcast. Uh, as I was um, like talking to these guys as well uh, before we started recording, it was essentially the rationale behind this episode or like the idea from where this episode kind of generated was like, you know, the conversation we had back in Jordan for CEP. So those guys who were attending CEP in Jordan this year, I would like, you know, especially request you guys to... Uh, Keep your, you know, um, <laughs> like, like ears open whenever you're with Dr. Wright and just like try and pick his head in <laughs> terms of, you know, getting the interesting stories out of him. He's a very interesting character to get to to get to know of. Uh, so basically, yeah, the story behind this episode goes, uh, you know, like under underneath the Jordanian night sky in which uh, me and Dr. Wright was like sat for hours and discussed, you know, uh, his life and the. Uh, and the events that he's been through. And honestly, for me as a freshman, it was like the most inspiring story to uh, get, get get to listen to. Uh, and so basically, that's why I sort of decided to, you know, bring this story out for the, uh, for the rest of the Georgetown community as well, because there's much to learn in terms of, you know, being inspired in this. Uh, so yeah, it's just, just to, you know, get things right off the bat. Um, Dr. Wright, from what I've noticed, you have a very positive, you know, vibrant and cheerful kind of personality. Uh, but there is a deep story that goes behind it. So I would ask your childhood story, essentially. Like, has it has your childhood always been like this? So what what's the story, essentially? Yeah, yeah. First of all, I need to um, acknowledge it. Yeah, we had wonderful conversations. Absolutely. And I remember that night where the stars were bright. Yes. <laughs> we had a fire going. There were a number of people around. And, perfect. And it was just the perfect vibe. And yeah. 
any any good conversation starts with two or more people. Yes. So so I I I remember that. But um, I since you asked about childhood, I'll just go there because um, you know, as a psychologist, um, I say whether you believe it or not, whatever you do, whatever has happened, whatever you have endured during your uh, childhood is foundational to your identity. Um, so I don't skirt around that. So I always start with the idea um, of defining myself, even to this day, as um, a foster child. Mm -hmm. And what that meant was a good portion of my childhood was uh, I was actually what we would call a ward of the state. Mm -hmm. Meaning uh, that while I lived with various families, I um, essentially... My guardian was actually the state itself. I grew up in New Jersey, uh, northern New Jersey, uh, did a little bit of time in New York, but um, I'm not like some of these Jersey folk. I, I don't claim New York, <laughs> <laughs> even though I spent three years there. Yeah. And, you know, I, I will be very frank, you know, um, you know, when people ask me about family, and to me, family no matter how you define it, is another essential part of who you are. I can't skirt around the fact that I actually lived with two families, I mean four families, in addition to the fact of uh, living in two residential facilities. Are we talking orphanages? Well, yeah, yeah. One, uh, one being, uh, it, it did have people who were alive, but you could essentially say that. Okay. And uh, I said I'd keep this PG. PG. And one where <laughs> when you're sort of acting up a little bit and society doesn't know what to do with you, they sort of put you in these places with the hopes that you're going to be reformed. You know, um, uh, unfortunately, I can probably tell you that most of the kids that I was with in these facilities um, didn't fare as well as me. Meaning, um, and this is just statistically true, Mm -hmm. um, that uh, we know that after you come from this background or facilities, um, typically what happens is you fall behind in your education, right, when they reintegrate you into public schools, if, in fact, you go back. Um, the behavioral issues continue, right, mm -hmm. because of not anything inherently wrong with the child, but because of what they don't have or didn't get, et cetera. And then there's something that recidivism where they go back into the system, but this time as an adult. And unfortunately, when that happens, that could be uh, a life sentence. Uh, for me, uh, fortunately, things turned out just a little different. Mm -hmm. Just a little different. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I always say, uh, I can't say it had anything to do with me inherently. Makes sense. Yeah, when people say, you know, well, what was it about you? And I go, I don't think much, to be honest with you. Uh, if there's anything that I can point to, it's key individuals that just appeared when I needed the most. Right? They weren't consistently in my life. But when I needed the most, somehow they just were magically there. And then helped me to sort of just push to the next challenge the next next moment in life mm -hmm. and um 
most of those people were teachers who went above and beyond the curriculum. And let me, I'm talking to three smart, talented Georgetown students, right? Um, I was not the A student. And a matter of fact, um, I did not read. I hope this doesn't, like the people in my class won't say, <laughs> okay, we're dropping soon. <laughs> I didn't read a full book until I, my first uh, semester in college. I didn't read a full book. I was too busy surviving. And so um, I just did what I could to kind of move along with the idea that I had to work full time during uh, um, basically all through high school. And um, the best thing that happened to me, and I'll sort of pause my story here because most people would see it as, oh my goodness, this is the beginning of the end. But um, what happens with uh, wards of the state, at least in the US, is when you're 16, um, they ask you if you want to be emancipated. Mm. Like in other words, do you want to continue being a ward of the state? And that comes with, well, we'll provide a little housing. We'll, um, we'll, we'll cut a check to whoever your guardian, assigned guardian would be. And uh, you can get that all the way up to 18 years old. It might be 21 now. We're talking 1980. 82-ish. Um, I enthusiastically said, emancipate me. <laughs> Such a bold decision. <laughs> Free me. Yeah. Free me. And it just so happened that my emancipation occurred on uh, the day of graduating from high school and getting prepared to go to college. Um, so you have mentioned individuals who have played key roles, um, who have appeared magically and provided guidance. Uh, so from Ibrahim, I've heard uh, that there's a special counselor that made you do better or helped you do better. Yeah. Um, so we would like to do touch, up, touch on upon that and like understand the idea of you can do better and the yeah. encouragement from outside sources and how that helped um, shape the circumstances that you went through. Thank you. Yeah, because I can never forget about Miss Green. And she did appear magically in my life. So, um, uh, 10th grade, uh, like I said, I'm just, high school was a place where I would just get some rest, hang out with friends, maybe have a lunch. That was a free lunch, by the way. Mm. And, and then go off to work in the evening. So I'm hanging out with my friends, a group of friends, and then this, this guidance counselor, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I mean, imagine this, right? You got like a bunch of guys hanging out, doing whatever we want to do. I know this sounds weird in a high school, but um, my high school didn't really sort of push people academically, right? It was just sort of housing people and making sure that we didn't do any harm to ourselves or others. So she comes up to my group. And for some reason, she points to me, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And then she, she literally says to me, you can do better. I don't know what she was talking about at the time. Mm -hmm. And I want to see you in my office. And she gave like a day in time. I can literally tell you, I mean, adults were not my, my friends. But there was something she said that pierced my soul. 
And I said, I don't know what this is, but I think I better visit this woman. I go to my first meeting, and she doesn't, maybe she has some information about me, maybe she doesn't, I don't know. She just simply, once again, looks in my eyes and says, I can see you're going through things, but even with that, you can, and here's the clinch, clincher, and will do better. So I'm saying to myself, okay, all right. I still don't believe it. Mm. I'm still surviving, mm. right? But here's this person that's just emphatically saying, like literally, I know something about you that you haven't learned about yourself yet. Can you imagine how powerful that is? And then she goes on to meet with me. We're talking, by the way, a school that's close to 3,000 people. Yeah. I'm not the only troubled youth, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. in that bunch of 3,000. But somehow, and once again, I will never know why she decided to pull this troubled youth mm -hmm. in. And so there was just something where I said, you know what, I will just sort of at least be with her and see what happens. I got to tell you also that first time was the first, uh, when we met, that was the first time that I ever cried to in front of an adult mm. that was a stranger to me. And it was an incredible release. Um, and I think being able to show that vulnerability was my way of conveying to her that while I'm not on the same page yet, I'm going to try. I'm going to lean into this a little bit. Mm. Let me fast forward this uh, just slightly. So we meet for a couple years. And I'm still surviving, by the way. Yeah. Mm. And I knew I, I'm a first generation college student on every level. Yeah. So I have four degrees, right? Um, and each time it's, it's, it's like a random thing for me. I don't know. I'm not preparing for anything. So she says to me, I know you have to work over the weekend. And she says, no matter. And back then, I used to hang out in Harlem. That's where I would sort of blow off steam and all of that stuff. Uh, and she says, on this Saturday, I don't care what you're doing. You will come back to the auditorium at 8 o'clock, and you will have two number two pencils. Maybe she said that this was the SAT exam, but I don't remember that part. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I, I'll keep it a little low key, but I was hanging out pretty late that night. Okay. Uh, and, and the way we did it, like the sun comes up and I said, you know what, I got to catch the bus and I got to go back to this auditorium. Please don't ask me my SAT score. Um, <laughs> but I, but I, I came back because she believed in me. I didn't do any prep. I didn't even feel nervous about it because I didn't know what it was. I will tell you this. I think it was high enough so that um, when, hear me when I say this, when she applied for colleges for me, Ibrahim, I think I told you this, <laughs> yes. right? I don't ever remember filling out an application. <laughs> I honestly don't. Yeah. I honestly don't. By then, she knows my situation. She knows I'm going to be emancipated. She knows I'm not going to have a home, mm. uh, and I need to go somewhere, mm. right? Mm. So... Apparently, somehow these applications got completed. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
And uh, I, I guess uh, maybe two or three months before I graduated, um, she spreads out the three or four colleges that I was accepted to. She okay. says, look at this, right? And, you know, I mean, they're not Georgetown. They were, you know, good state schools, right? I, I, prior to that, never stepped foot on a college. Maybe I've seen a few in the movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw, oh, I saw a community school because, yeah, I had a summer job where I would pick up trash there for, for bucks, for money. Mm. That's the closest. She wow. spreads out the list and she goes, you're going to that one. She chose for me. Mm -hmm. She literally chose for me. And um, that was uh, Rutgers University. And I now know why she chose it. Not because of, you know, great ac academics or it's the best reputation or whatever. the I don't remember the other schools. Yeah. I totally don't. But um, she knew that they had a summer program that was eight weeks long that would bridge the gap between the start of college and me being homeless. That's why she chose it. And... As long as your bank account read zero, 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 and mine's did with big red zeros, <laughs> you could go to the summer program absolutely free and own six credit and earn six credits. So that's how I got to Rutgers University, and um, that created a whole new set of challenges that have shaped me to who I am today. So we want to move on to the next question about you living on a bench for a day. <laughs> uh, so we know about the summer program that was like connected to your uh, college education. Uh, so we know that she, your counselor believed in you essentially before yeah, you believed yeah. in yourself. And uh, she was able to choose uh, your path um, for you. Um, and we want to know the struggles that you went through to be able to achieve the achievements that you did. Okay. And, and I also distinctly remember you mentioning that that night on the bench underneath the open sky, that was the first time that you felt liberated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so how, how was that experience like? I oh. mean, and before you explain, Dr. Ray, let yes. me tell you, this is this line, that night on the bench, got really popular after you came back from Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> so it was spread throughout the Georgetown community. So what's your take on this? Can you explain? You know, so I will say this, um, that bench means so much to me, and it's the older part of uh, Rutgers is like Georgetown. It's, it's 250 years old. And um, I, before I came to Qatar, I actually visited that bench, and I sat on it again. Now they remodeled, upgraded, but it's still the same. Mm. It's not the wooden bench that yeah. I stayed a couple nights on. So um, the thing with emancipation is when it's over with the state, it's over. And um, so within a week, I graduate high school, I get emancipated, and I'm on, I'm on my way to Rutgers University. The social worker who's driving me there, uh, I still feel sorry for her. <laughs> um, she, she, she's under the impression it's a Friday that, oh, I'll just go to the school, get enrolled, and she'll put me in the dorms and say, have a nice life. So we get the Rutgers, and they go, welcome, but we don't open. The summer program doesn't open until Sunday. Oh. Wow. 
And so now she's, she's looking at me. I mean, she's far more nervous than I am. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I kind of lived on the streets a little bit, so I'm not fearful. As long as they say, hey, um, you can come in, have a roof over your head at some point, and you can get a meal or two, I, I'm good to go. I'm more fearful of writing a paper <laughs> <laughs> or reading a book. <laughs> so I remember her looking me in the eyes and saying, um, my shift ends at five. Imagine it's like two o'clock. She's about two hours away from her office. Rutgers is central Jersey. And she says, I've got to go. I've got to go. Um, I find that bench, I don't know why that bench. Yeah. It was um, a bit in the open. It wasn't even concealed. Um, I could see the oldest buildings of the university. I put my plastic bags. Mm. Uh, you know one thing that foster kids can really identify with? They say one or two bags. In other words, your belongings, they just put them in trash bags. So I had two. I had my clothes, and then I had my sneakers. I was a bit of a sneakerhead, you know. And um, I put them underneath that bench. And I remember very specifically going to a sub shop, a sandwich shop. And I got a big thing of apple juice, and I got a long sandwich, which would last me two days, by the way. And then by the time I got to that bench, and I was able to lie down, that was the start of my liberation. That's when I started getting a sense of what it felt to actually be free. And I've been pursuing that all my life since then. In every conceivable way, physically, financially, intellectually, spiritually. Um, most people, when I would tell that story, would hear it in horror. And I go, please don't. Yeah. Because... Never have I smiled so large than on that night. Now, there was a point where that smile got wiped off my face. I don't know. Maybe it's midnight. You know, you only could sleep like if you've ever slept on a bench an hour and a half, two hours, and then you wake up, you readjust, you sleep again, that type of thing. I don't even know where I'm at. The, the, I believe the campus police. <laughs> oh. Start strolling along, and I'm up. And I haven't had, uh, up to that point, any positive encounters with police in the dark. So um, I'm sitting there go, oh boy, what's gonna happen? Right? Is he even gonna believe when I tell him, I'm a student here and I'm waiting for the dorms to open? I don't know how I would have responded except that he walked, he came close to me, and he walked past me and said nothing. I believe maybe I had a little bite of my sandwich out of nervousness and laid back on the bench. I did that for two nights until um, they let me in the dorm. And it's weird because at that point, I'm thinking, they're going to really give me... <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm defining myself in very negative terms at, at that point. A key and a room to myself. And lo and behold, I went there and Miss Green was right. 
I got there and here they had this little sort of brown envelope and they go, welcome to Rutgers. Here you go. That's how I started college. That is pretty inspirational. But Dr. Ed, on the idea of liberation, you said that at 16, you had to make the decision whether you wanted to be emancipated or you can still be uh, under the state. And you took the decision of being emancipated right away. I want to understand that wasn't it difficult making this decision, knowing that you had nowhere to go once you were emancipated? You were just 16 years old. You had nowhere to go. You weren't sure about the future. And yet you were ready to make that decision. Wasn't it difficult? It, no, it was. I mean, I make light of it now because of where I'm at in life. Yeah. And um, what helped with that was knowing that I had so many surrogate family members yeah. within the area that this wasn't the first time I encountered homelessness. I just knew that, look, if I needed a place to go, if I was stuck, yeah. I had people. Okay. I had people who would say, you know what? No answer. You no. You don't have to answer any questions. The couch is yours. Are you hungry? Here's a little bit of food. Yeah. So I had these people around to do that. Yeah. But the thing, and it just, you know, when we look back in our life, we do what we call sort of psychological reconstruction, right? Yeah. You know, so um, I don't want to make it sound like you know I had this incredible insight into the future, mm-hmm. but I think I had enough um, awareness. I was going to say abuse by the system. Yeah. Okay. That's awareness, but that's mm. that's awareness that you feel. Yeah. <laughs> right? Mm. I had enough abuse, emotional and physical abuse by a system that even though I didn't know what actually comes next, I had an inkling that nothing could be worse than this. Mm. It's better to struggle to be uncomfortable and feel pain, but it's under your own sort of decision-making and autonomy, i.e. freedom. No one says freedom is joyful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. It's just that, look, whatever I'm encountering, it's because encountering it's because I chose, I linked it, versus I'm a part of this thing that, here's the thing, hey, we'll provide a little structure for you, we'll, you know, we'll make sure that you have a little food, et cetera, and because you're you know, a certain age, we'll even give you a little check. And trust me, that was a big enticement when you don't have any money. By the way, I remember my life savings, working full time and supporting myself through high school. I remember how many dollars I had in my pocket, $235 to my name, period. So that check would have come in handy, Mm -hmm. but given, once again, what I would have to give up. And, and, and I'm reconstructing for you, right? Now I could look back. Yeah. But that kid, that kid couldn't say, like, hey, this is an abusive system that has done this to me. It was very intuitive. In the moment. It was yeah. very intuitive. And then knowing, once again, people in my life at the right time. Mm-hmm. So I had a surrogate family. I'm smiling a little bit. I told you I don't want to implicate people in my story. But let's just say that they were fairly big time in New York mm-hmm. and uh, did things that were, I think we used to say, under the table to be nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. But these people cared for me as if I was related to them. Mm-hmm. And they assured me that if I needed anything, imagine this, 
I'm floating around in New York, something happens to me, I only need to go to them. And they assure me they'll take care of everything. So with people backing you up like that, I go, you know what, I could take a little risk. I could lean into whatever the unknown is. Um, But I had no idea, and yes, I was very nervous, I was scared. Um, I probably felt a little more scared and intimidated sleeping in that bed for the first night in the dorm than actually on the bench, which was more familiar to me. So, Dr. Wright, you mentioned the idea of uh, psychological reconstruction that uh, that you've been doing throughout. Uh, so let's do a bit of psychological reconstruction <laughs> in this episode as well. And um, so the question that I basically have for you is that in, in, the, in the aftermath of everything that you've been through in your life, uh, the struggles that you've faced, the people that you've met, um, like in, in, in the context of all of this, would you still categorize yourself to be a self-made person or not? Mm. Wow. Someone asked me, or we talked about that maybe like um, with another student a week ago, and I sort of agreed. Uh, I'm not self-made. I mean, I understand what that means. Mm. And I can really tout a lot of my accomplishments now. Um, But I am because, um, you know, there's an African proverb uh, or phrase, I am because we are. Mm -hmm. I'm a a compilation of just the many, uh, you know, gifts and time, uh, treasure, you know, um, from people that were very evident in my life. And I'm very much aware, I I tend to try to be a spiritual person, that um, I'm also um, blessed for and leaning on people that I have never met. And I'm very much aware, keep in mind here, um, you know, I'm sure you all know this, but most uh, African-Americans, right, most black folk who've been in the U.S. Um, trace their lineage back to people who were enslaved. And being a slave in the U.S. meant that if you were caught reading, you could be killed. No trial, just killed. So when I think about my own history and how this kid who comes out of very dire circumstances could then become a professor, uh, a, a, a psychologist, <laughs> you know, and, and then um, interact in places like Georgetown and the University of Florida and Cornell University, right? All these big names, mm-hmm. right? Oh, I would never attribute that just to some kind of inherited, inherent, um, you know, talent or ability within myself. Um, I know. You remember I talked about sort of um, uh, the residential facilities? Mm-hmm. I know for a fact there were kids that were just as talented. I wasn't the smartest out of that bunch. Um, I got lucky. Let me even tell you, you might even ask, well, how, how is it that you were like 16, like 16 and a half going to college, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I was a kid, and I basically looked like I was 14, 14 or 15. I was malnutrition, so my first year, I actually gained 25 pounds and grew two and a half inches because I, it was the first time I had three meals a day for a full year. You know, but in one of these places that I was in, 
I happened to be the youngest kid in this facility. And um, there was a guy there, pretty abusive, by the way. Mm. But um, he sort of treated me like a mascot. That's a negative term, by the way. But what he did in me being a mascot, imagine this, a place where there's no grades. Every day you do the same thing, right? You can get a picture of what this is. And the uh, teachers, if you will, can do physically whatever they please to keep you in line. So the one thing he said to me, he called me Johnny. By the way, I don't go by Johnny. But he was Irish, so I'll give him a pass. (laughs) He's like, Johnny, this is the one thing that I want you to do. I want you to learn a new word every day, be able to pronounce it and use it in a sentence, and then when we start class, I want you to go up to that class, to the class, and then introduce that word. <laughs> had a dictionary, little pocket dictionary, out of fear, out of fear. I'm like, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. Remember, they can do whatever <laughs> they please physically to keep you in line. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm just learning words. <laughs> You know, and once again, not to do well on SATs and to get into a good college. I'm doing well so that I don't, you know, get some kind of punishment. It turns out that when they when I re-entered into the public school, um, you know, off to another foster home, and then I I think I was uh, 11 years old. Um, normally, we are so far behind that um, they're just deciding how many grades to put us behind in this instance and I remember them having the conversation with the door open they were like what do we do with this kid his verbal scores are off the charts (laughs) I had never written a paper I just learned words yeah right and that's I I had a birthday in January and they skipped me a grade that's how you know I I get there I bring that up because even the people I'm not saying they're saints there was angels before me right Mm -hmm. I mean, some of these guys were outright terror. This guy, what he did was pretty terrorizing. The people that said, you got a place to stay were gangsters, straight up. I'm not just saying that. (laughs) They were gangsters. Um, But for whatever reason, like when I needed them, they gave me exactly what I needed. You know, so um, I'm not self-made. I'm fortunate, blessed maybe lucky that's what i am that's really inspirational dr Egg, the fact that you uh, actually look at look up to these people and agree to the fact the, agree to the role that they played in your life because i know a lot, a lot of people tend to want to be self made even though they have a backing of a lot of people yet you're over here giving credit to all these people yeah. even though you went through so much struggles on your own so that's yeah. really inspirational to hear from you now coming to the uh, idea of college and you mentioned a bit about grades and psychology now psychology was probably a, a degree that was considered a niche to a certain extent maybe at that time so what really drew you towards psychology and then towards a career in psychology and then counseling never aspired to be a psychologist especially at that time couldn't spell psychology until they showed me what it is because that wasn't one of the words that I learned <laughs> <laughs> And um, 
quite frankly, uh, for about a year and a half, maybe close to two years, uh, on two occasions, I received letters saying, if you don't, you're on probation, and if you don't boost your grades up, um, we're going to let you go. And in a large state school, there's, especially in 1983, there's not many people you can go to to say, help, help me. What do I do? Uh, so I'm still running on fear. Um, but one thing that was very consistent with me was, um, once again, I'm reconstructing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I never, like I never said I'm going to go to college and be something. I go, initially, I go to college saying, Miss Green is recommending this, and maybe it can tie me over mm. until I can think about the next thing, meaning food, a roof over my head so I can plan my next thing. Right? But at the same time, I was unknowingly exploring the notion of who I am. Mm-hmm. And that shouldn't surprise you as a foster kid, right? Most people say, who are you? Well, you know, and you go, you know, I'm the son, I'm the daughter of, and we come and we do, and that, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, what I failed to remen- uh, mention here is I... Uh, reunited with the only three family members that I know on this earth after I finished high school. Mm-hmm. So I was taking courses that was somehow like illuminating who I am within this world. And by the way, psychology did more to tell me in undergrad um, who I didn't want to be. Yeah. Right, So it's not like psychology was like, oh, wow, that's it. But I was like, if this is what human beings are supposed to be in this particular discipline, I'm going to strive not to be that. But that is also important. The other thing, I I actually majored in um, Africana studies and studied a lot of history. That taught me more. Matter of fact, the first full book that I read in college, that today when you say, what was the start of your sort of intellectual journey? The first book I wrote was the autobiography of Malcolm X. Yeah. It was assigned in, African, in one of the Africana Studies classes. And I probably have read that book about 11, 12 times now. I learned more about myself reading about this man, right? El-Hajj ha- El Malik Sabaz. Um, and even, quite frankly, more about psychology at that time than my psychology books. Yeah. But I was in search of, I was in search of, I didn't know at the time, but I was in search of myself. I didn't say I want to be a historian. I didn't say I want to be a psychologist. And then when I latched onto these two subjects, the academics came. Literally now, I waited until the end of the day so I can devote four to five hours a day just reading. And the assignments and all that stuff, I just sort of did, right? I I, I can get them out the way so I can continue learning. And um, I think I can tell you, by the time I graduated, I fell in love with learning. But I didn't say like, oh, now I have a degree and now I'm going to go and get a master's degree and now I'm going to become a psychologist, et cetera. I just simply fell in love with learning. 
And that has sort of propelled me to this point that whether it's great that I'm here in a place where our primary sort of goal, all of us, is to continue learning, right, and fostering our intellectual development. But that being said, if I weren't here, I, I'm going to keep learning. So, Professor, you have asked yourself multiple times if this, if you could become a professor and if this was the career choice for you. And you went through with it because you were thinking, this is Miss Green's vision for me, and I will go through with it. Fast forward, you work in D.C., you work in Doha. Yeah. Um, you work in education. So you yeah. pursued a career in education, and you went ahead with it. So um, maybe her plan was the right plan? Well, there was a major detour for about eight, nine years. Oh, okay. I never, I never taught anything until I was a doctoral student. Once again, I'm not striving for. When I left college, here was my one and only goal: mm -hmm. I want to help youth. Mm -hmm. No, but there's no right. There's no mystery to that. You can mm -hmm. see where that comes from. Mm -hmm. I just want to help youth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I moved to D.C. because at that time, D.C. was a place where it was 89% black, mm -hmm. and people were doing things rich and poor. Mm -hmm. So, I, so I, I went there. And by the way, I went there with no job. Mm. And just a promise from a, a classmate who graduated the year before that I could stay for the summer. And the first job I got, um, working with children with severe disabilities, developmental disabilities, also some behavioral issues. I, I don't go lightly with, you know, I mean, I want, I want to connect with people who had the same challenges as me. So when I go there, get this, two degrees, and they offer me minimum wage. I literally kept that job for eight and a half years through a master's until I had to leave for my PhD. And I tell people I did anything from, you know, um, wrestling kids in the hallway to keep them from sort of harming another kid to literally, and I mean this, I mean this in a literal sense, not a figurative sense, working with kids where I had to literally wipe their ass because they couldn't physically do it. And I will tell you straight up that it, that is the most fulfilling thing I ever did, to be able to come full circle and do that. And it is the most foundational thing to who I am. When you see me in events and then all of a sudden you see it's over with and I'm picking up trash, you know where that comes from. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to look good. Helping I'm, others. Oh, I'm trying to show you that I'm grateful. Mm -hmm. And I will do anything to show my gratitude. Other things that I did before I decided, like, you know what? I think I could be a psychologist. I think I'm going to go on. I worked in the prison system, mm -hmm. maximum prison. Mm -hmm. uh, did that for two years. Mm -hmm. I worked with people who were dual diagnosed substance abusers who also suffered from a major um, psychological, psychiatric issue. Usually it was a combination of I'm addicted to crack and I'm schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. I actually um, assessed and helped uh, homeless people and interviewed them in the alleyways to actually get benefits from the system. You can see I'm trying my damnedest not to become a psychologist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm trying my damnedest, right, mm -hmm. to connect with and do something for other people. Little did I know, I was setting myself up for a place like Georgetown, mm -hmm. right? Men and women, women, people for others. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Dr. Wright, um, uh, as Director of Student Life here mm -hmm. at Georgetown, 
we want to know that uh, so you 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 talked about doing something for others uh, that was your trajectory throughout your career and your life so we want to know that what are your what is your vision for the class uh, the people of Georgetown in particular for the class of 2027 the current freshmen what can they look forward for what projects do you have in mind and how do you see yourself immersing yourself in in this Georgetown community as director of student life well you know i always start with this notion of um this is a place where and you know this as students um it's very value driven and the idea here is that um, somehow during your four years, you're going to be um, sparked by motivated, by, motivated by a vision that will also benefit the world in some way. So for me, my, my job is very simple and complex. I mean, it's creating and doing and working with students so that they will reach their um, or actualize their potential in the way in which they imagine. Notice, not in the way I imagine, yeah. right? Yeah. Your life, your path, past, that's you. Um, so, you know, that's what guides me here. And I got I to gotta tell you, um, I can list programs. Maybe I'll list a few um, to give my um, colleagues some credit here. Um, but the work, I think, within student life, the work within Georgetown, what I've noticed is as long as you're focused on developing and giving, developing people. Yeah. And by mm -hmm. the way, it's obvious to say, oh, it's about developing students. I remind staff, it's also about developing ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, um, there is, uh, I'm going to give you a little psychology. I've I got to give you a little bit. <laughs> you know, and, and, and. Um, this guy named Carl Rogers, right? So, I mean, I, I have a lot of philosophies that go into my psychological thinking, but he was a humanist. Yeah, yeah and I was trained by some old humanists uh, back in the day. But um, he had this notion around sort of, you don't necessarily have to do like a technique or strategy for people to benefit. Mm. He said, what you really have to give is this notion around unconditional positive regard. I'll say that again, unconditional positive regard. I won't get too deep because I'll get lost in this. Yeah. I haven't taught general psych in a long time. But let me just tell you this. The way of looking at that is that it's, it's fertilization. If you can create with that person the right conditions where no matter what you do or say or who you become, I accept you. Right? I accept you and all of it with no judgment. Then he believes that is the way people grow into whoever, right? They have the potential to be. Mm -hmm. So when I'm looking at any type of program, I'm I'm sort of looking at it at that lens. When I'm walking through the atrium, when I'm interacting with you, I am literally saying, Am I literally giving that unconditional positive regard? And it's aspirational, right? You don't say, like, oh, did it, nailed it, move on. It's not that type of thing. You live it, and you keep trying and trying. And what I know is when you put people in nice facilities who have an abundance of talent, and you are exhibiting unconditional positive regard, amazing things happen. For sure. 
That's a wonderful, a wonderful way to put it, Dr. Wright. Uh, so just to wrap it all up now, uh, I mean, I, I would say that a 45-minute conversation might not be able to do, you know, justice to, um, like, the, the, the intrinsic values that you've learned throughout your lives. But um, at least this is one step in the right direction. And yeah. I'm sure that, um, like, after this podcast, you'll, you'll, you, you can expect more students coming to you and, you know, <laughs> trying to, you know, uh, make more sense of things. But uh, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Uh, and uh, I really wish you the best of luck for all your future endeavors. And I hope that student life reaches new heights under your leadership. Thank you so much. And let me just say to all three of you, it's been an absolute joy. And I also wish this much success as you continue to grow and bring more people on. But thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of GEQ Speaks. We hope you've gained valuable insights and inspirations from our conversation today. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow us on our Instagram page at GEQ underscore speaks. And be sure to leave a review on Spotify to show your support.